As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey folks, welcome into On to Waveland. It's the Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. I am Brett Taylor, joined by Sahadev Sharma and Patrick Mooney. Mooney, who is taking in the sights and sounds and smells and sun of Arizona. Uh, how is it out there, man? Uh, it's a little surreal, but it's also uh, somewhat encouraging, I would say, just in terms of some of the access we've been given I think kind of the all the Cubs are still cautious and following all the protocols. Um, I think the fact that they were able to make it through last year uh, without a player testing positive during the season uh, has given them, you know, some some hopes. I mean, the fact that there's going to be I'm sitting right now in the press box in one of the, the booths at Sloan Park. The fact that there's going to be like thousands of people here. Um, is a sign of, you know, how encouraged they are in, in terms of the numbers and what they think they can do. And even just yesterday, uh, Tommy Hadavi met with a group of about five of us. Um, we were distanced. There was a fence separating us, but the fact that we could actually you know, do an interview that wasn't on Zoom, I mean, that was nowhere close to being on the table last season. And I think there are these small kind of, Markers both within baseball and you know some of the, the metrics that the public health officials use that fingers crossed things are kind of trending in a direction to where you could see you know maybe a, a quasi normal summer. Well, and who would have thought that you know this time last year we were talking doing the pod even and of course we were covering baseball in our respective spheres and like things got a little worse and got a little more involved in the United States and like the, the protocols started to shift for you guys out at spring training. And it's, it's just a weird point of reflection now to think back to how things were then and how little we understood and how little we thought about how everything was going to change. And now it's like, well, I was able to, you know, interview a guy uh, from seven feet away across a fence and I could see his face 
And so it's pretty great. You know, things are pretty good. And it's, so it's just, it is good. That is good. And I'm not denigrating it at all, but it's, it is a reminder of like how far, how much things changed and then how far we sort of still have to go um, in general. And then also within the baseball context. And even like last year at Wrigley Field, you know, so much of the stadium was just roped up in part because they had to use, repurpose the stadium to like hold games and, you know, keep everyone within their bubble. But during live batting practice yesterday, like, you know, you could actually, you know, sit in the same lower bowl as like David Ross and Jed Hoyer, Jason McLeod, not that we were intermingling and there still are these tier one and tier two designations. But like something like that, it really never would have happened last year. And I think it's kind of adapting to, you know, kind of what we have to do now. But yeah, it was weird seeing someone like David Ross, not just like on a Zoom meeting screen, like him actually like walking, you know, in the flesh and, um, you know, seeing players do normal baseball activities. Well, I just remember like Patrick has been there for the start of spring and and he was also there for the end of last spring, right? I I had been gone for a few days when things really changed, but I remember how <laughs> how almost up in arms media was when the first restrictions came in place, right? We were you know, we were I, I think it's fair for for us to like our our focus is on access a lot. Right. And and I don't think a, a lot of us had fully accepted how serious this was going to be. So immediately when the access starts being restricted, it's like, uh oh, what are they doing to us? They're just they're they're making sure that they come down on the media. They've always wanted to get us out of there. So so now they're doing it. They're they're getting their chance. And I remember how bent out of shape we were. And that happened right like a day or two before I left where it happened with the NHL, where they were restricting in-person access. And we were all like, oh, no, what's happening? Are they going to do that to us? Instead of instead of thinking like, oh, my God, our whole world is going to change, not just our our work world. Right. So it, it, uh, it, it just to think about how I mean, I like Patrick describing what the access that we have, like brings a big smile to my face. So it's completely different. You know, at first I was like. We're going to have distanced, uh, you know, interviews, you know, uh, about a year ago. I was thinking that and now I'm like in-person interviews. I don't care that I'm eight feet away. Like this is changes the game, you know, so it's I know people may think it's a little different, but just I mean, just interacting with people in person, you can kind of get a feel for them better. Uh, the way they're reacting to your questions, all sorts of things. It just completely changes how we do our jobs, in my opinion, especially when you know, there's there's opportunities to get distance one on ones. I think those are just it's a very different way of doing our job compared to Zoom, As even if it was a private Zoom. It's just it's just different. And and I'm sure everyone start, realizes that now after a year of of distancing and, and, you know, maybe gathering with your friends via Zoom instead of having a barbecue or a house party or whatever it may be. Uh, we, we all know the differences there. So I, I think uh, even the listeners who may not. Uh, have any idea what we do on a day-to-day basis in a normal world can appreciate how different just something small like that can be oh just one quick aside i think the disconnect last year was okay we can't go in the clubhouse for public health concerns but they can sell eleven thousand tickets to a night game uh at sloan park and you know our colleague scott powers had a good story the other day of just you know citing a high-ranking city of Chicago official 
uh, who said that their expectation is that baseball fans will be allowed into Cubs and White Sox games this year, not 40,000 uh, at a time, but clearly they can kind of see where this is heading and can see that possibility, particularly with the outdoor component uh, versus you know, Bulls and Blackhawks games. Yeah, I mean, I think fans obviously experience this stuff and have experienced a change by virtue of what you're saying, Mooney, not, not being at games and um, still, you know, I don't know, being able to watch games, yeah, but no fans at them. You sort of see the, the impact and feel the impact there. But you're right too, Sahadev, even for those of us who don't, uh, you know, who either don't know or don't participate in the media in the same way that you guys do. I mean, it, it became evident. Like you sort of feel it in your own life, just the difference in the way you experience people. And then it's just not that hard to translate it to like, okay, I'm, I'm consuming my relationship with this sport. Something about it feels really different. And I think a big part of that is just you guys not physically being able to be there with other humans. And like, I don't know, it's cliche, but it's also true that so much of communication is not the words that are being said. It's sort of the ambiance, it's the feel, it's the movement, it's all of that, that, you know, as you guys are doing your job, you can't really pick up on that stuff at a distance that might inform the next question that might inform the way you're going to present something that, you know, on and on and on. So I would add too that as a as a fan and a um, sort of next level consumer, I'm really looking forward to you guys being able to have more of that access this year and resuming that. And, and I think that um, you know it might it might even if if we're lucky bring a sort of an extra freshness to it that like you mentioned, Sadev, that it's like exciting to be back at that. That you know I think that vicariously fans will will feel that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So let's get a little, uh, you know, back to the the players on the field. And I think that um, <laughs> something is speaking. Of, well, actually, this it's, it's related. It's a good transition because it's something that I think people really enjoyed this week that we, you know, if spring training were taking place, um, you know, in September or October, we would not have been able to see, which was. The beat writers doing their thing with their cameras, with their phones, uh, taking some video and like getting to see Chris Bryant take Jake Arrieta deep. And it's like that is a little slice of normal um, fun that you you get from spring training. And so that sort of, um, you know, opened up the conversation about like, OK, how are guys looking? How are they actually you know starting? We're getting some live BP. We're not at games yet, but it's like steps in this process. Uh, toward 
actually being able to evaluate how guys are looking, how they're kind of going to perform. And, and that's a nice, that's a nice touch. Been waiting, waiting on that. And, um, it got me thinking specifically about Jake Arietta returning, um, after his time with the Phillies where, you know, I don't know that it was an intentional transition into an even more contact oriented pitcher, but certainly the last two years, he became kind of an extreme contact oriented guy. Um, not necessarily with success and having added him and Trevor Williams, who was also an extreme contact oriented guy. Um, I was thinking about the rotation and you wrote something sort of about the importance of defense this year, but I think I didn't really grasp just how extreme it was for this rotation until I saw. So here, here's what really hammered it for me. Zach Davies uh, is the most strikeout oriented pitcher uh, in this rotation now, sort of excluding Edward Alzali because he only made four starts last year. He's going to be limited in some respects, but yeah, he's more of a strikeout guy, but let's set him aside. So Davies, and that's only because he increased his strikeout rate massively from 2019 to 2020 and he got himself all the way up to being three percent below average in strikeout rate that's the strikeout guy in the rotate in this cubs rotation is the guy who massively increased his strikeout rate just so that he could be three percent below average is it is it that much below average wow oh you're saying his are you saying his overall career average no, his, so his, so this is, it's a, this is a fun, like side topic of how to use these terms, right? So we oh, you're talk saying, about strikeout yes, rate. Got it. Got it. You're saying percentage, not percentage points, not percentage points. And that's how got I it. delineate that. So for listeners out there, if you hear, when you hear statistics, when people say percentage, they just mean straight percent. Even if they're talking about a statistic that is expressed in percent, they're talking about percent of percent, <laughs> They not percentage points. Uh, he's not three percentage points below average. He's three percent lower than average. So his like rate was something like twenty two point nine percent, and I think league average was twenty three point one or something like that. I, so you know the, the defense for me. I know a lot of people are harping on the offense, and it needs they need to be better. And Ross even responded. I asked, you know, how much are you gonna like kind of factor in defense when when deciding who whose name you pencil in at. at second base every day and and he said yeah of course defense is important i value defense uh, even when i was a player he values defense very highly but we we have to score runs we need offense we need someone that can produce and he's right like they, they the offense was a mess last year they're not going to win games unless they score runs that's a very simple uh explanation right but i don't think anything matters if they're an average or worse uh defense like i i don't think they have a chance to be a good team if they have an average or below average defense. They can be average on defense and they'll lose a lot of games, in my opinion, just because it, it doesn't matter uh, what uh, what happens without great defense with this team. Yeah, as um, Mooney clearly was not a fan of the defense conversation because he How just gave us How dare old, you, Sahade? He just gave us the old uh, Irish <laughs> goodbye. No, he had, to, he, had, he had to head out. So, um, yeah, I think... Uh, like I said, I was struck in your piece too. how, I mean, like we talk, have talked about this stuff a lot. So um, we know that that 2016 defense was historically good. I mean, there are metrics by which it was the best defense ever. 
um, insofar as you can evaluate those things many, many years after the case. But sure, um, it was it was just silly good, silly good. And I think that you don't think so much about how critical that was to the Cubs' success that year because the offense was also really strong. The pitching staff was also really strong. They just caught a lot of good breaks that year. I mean, everything went right. But do they go as far as they did? Do they win it all without having a supremely elite defense? Does the pitching look nearly as good, et cetera? And, you know, this year's defense isn't going to be that good. I think you can just sort of look at it and evaluate and say that it won't. Um, But I also think you could say it doesn't have to be that good for this to be a competitive team. Um. But it's that relationship to the starting pitching staff that is just, it's just interesting. It's like, I don't think that the Cubs intentionally set out to build a, you know, an extreme contact oriented staff. I don't think that was the goal in the off season, Um, but it happened that way. It developed that way. And I think you're not, I don't think you're just being a homer who's convincing yourself of something. If you look at it now and you say, well, they have had a lot of success with these types of pitchers. This this infrastructure has, and you look around the, the the diamond, and it's like, okay, I can see each position being at least average or up to extremely well above average defensively. So, like, I don't know, might this not in a world where stuff pitching and extreme velocity are so heavily targeted and competitive, and you didn't have a lot of money to spend? And you had a lot of guys returning positionally that you weren't really going to be able to do much with anyway. I don't know. Maybe this is a different way of taking a big swing in a walk year for so many guys and being like, well, let's see if we can do this with like an ex- a very heavily defense and contact pitching oriented roster. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I think in today's game, we know that. Uh, strikeouts come at a premium, right? If you if you have high velocity and and can get swing and miss, even if you haven't had results just yet, but you have that tantalizing potential, I mean, you're going to get a decent contract. What did Taiwan Walker end up getting? I, I I don't remember the exact number. I think it was ten million per. Did did he get a second year too? Uh, he got he got three guaranteed years, and the third is a player option. Now it. It was they sort of played with it to reduce the AAV, but sure. it effect, it effectively was like two years at ten million a per, and then if he wants to stick around for three million more, he can stick around for a third year. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I I I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I can't remember exactly what Walker's done, but I don't recall him being anything, uh, you know, significantly above average, right? So I if I were in charge of a team and 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 I was just picking purely between, like, say, Trevor Williams and Taiwan Walker, I'd probably want to take the risk on Walker, right? Just in general, all things equal. The Cubs, we can we can bitch and moan about the lack of spending or the, the lack of big money spending in recent years, and I, I think it's completely fair. But in reality, they just weren't going to spend that much, right, for, for anything this offseason. So when, when you do that, yeah, why not target something, A, Target the 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 type of uh, pitchers that are kind of you believe are undervalued in today's market, and B, the type of pitchers that you've had tremendous success with. So these are two things: they're undervalued, 
and you believe you found something, something that works with a lot of these guys. I mean, they've, they've already started talking about it. Uh, Trevor Williams has brought up how there are certain things that he's working on that he got away from, that he likes. That they brought up things when they were talking to him in free agency that kind of clicked with him. And he's like, yeah, that's what I need to get back to. That's who I am. That's how I can succeed. I hadn't even thought of that aspect, and I can do that too. So there are all these little things. I'm not saying the Cubs are decades ahead of the game, but I think there is a chance that they've figured something out and they, they have uh, not only have they identified something, but they know how to maximize certain things when it comes to command and, uh, you know, certain East West type pitchers. Uh, I, I think that they've figured some things out, whether that be like seam shifted wake, uh, you know, spin mirroring, whatever, whatever it exactly is. Uh, they they wait, definitely wait, feel like I got to I got, I, and I'm sorry, listeners. I hope this isn't too nerdy for you, <laughs> but so, okay, wait real quick on seam shifted wake, which has look what seven months ago. I had never heard of it. Had you, had you heard like, I had never heard of it until it started that probably is to like kind of, right when it started coming out, right? Seven months ago yeah, about like when yeah. I said, yeah, I, I saw some article about it about seven months ago and I was kind of like, what is this? And it took me a while to really dive in because if you read those really in the weed articles, and it, it, you're you're going to get confused, and unless you like have a you know a physics degree, uh, but it, it's just a, like if you're if you're trying to get the explanation, and I think this is probably overkill for most people, but you don't need the full explanation, in my opinion, to understand what it is and to see that it's useful, right? Yeah, it's like well, the short version is it's a way to use the seam to make your pitch move slightly differently then the spin and the axis would otherwise make your brain think that, that it's going to move. And so like the impact. So for example, Kyle Hendricks, according to this research and statistically uh, was a, a really successful seam shifted wake guy. And yeah, I don't know, narratively, intrinsically, you think, okay, that makes sense, right? Because, like, guys just can't barrel him up. Like, for whatever reason, they just can't barrel him up. And so, like, as we've started to look at this topic, it kind of seems like it's a lot of guys who you're like, huh, why doesn't he get hit harder than he does? And it's because there's just this extra little subtle movement. And, okay, so that's seam shifted wake. And it's definitely, a, it's a particularly interesting concept for contact oriented pitchers. Um, because the the extra bit of movement that you're talking about is maybe not necessarily enough to create uh, swing and miss, uh, particularly off of a, a sinker, which you're not necessarily looking for swing and miss anyway. But it is enough to um, create uh, just a, a little bit off the barrel contact. And so uh, second thing then, you said another thing, and I, I'm just deeply embarrassed to confess that I don't know it. I'm not. I mean, you know it. what it, you know what it is. It, it, spin mirroring is just basically uh, throwing a pitch where the spin is exactly uh, mirrored. So it's basically like the uh, uh, perfectly thrown curveball and a perfectly spun four seam fastball mirror each other, right? So the four seam fastball is going this way, which you can't see uh, me, but okay, you know yes. it, it's going. It's spinning one he's, way. He's like spinning his fingers backwards. Yeah, right and now. then the curveball is spinning the exact opposite direction. And if you you they they have like visuals of this of how the ball looks to the batter, 
when it it's spinning, same. it looks the same because you cannot tell the direction it's spinning. You can just tell that it's kind of spinning by the se- okay. the way the seams are moving, the right? The seams are flipping. Yeah, but wow. it's moving when it moves so fast like that, it, there's like almost like an optical illusion for you where you can't it, it just looks like it's spinning the same. You don't know if it's Well, split. especially coming out of the hand. I mean, you yeah. obviously as a batter, you've got to identify it immediately. So yeah. you're like, "Oh, I see that spin. That's the four seamer. Oh shit, it's a curveball." Yeah. And, you know. And they, they, someone, I, I don't know where I saw it. Maybe it was a, you know, Sarah's article, but it just, it showed like video of like the batter view of a pitch being co- like shown, like it, it somehow freezed it. So it showed just the spin and you're like, whoa, that it looks like the same pitch, but one's a curveball and one's a, f- a forcing fastball. So spin wise, <laughs> it's, it's impossible to tell the difference with the naked eye. Uh, when you, when you spin mirror and someone that does that well is apparently Alec Mills. Now, now, does that mean automatic success? I think we've seen Alec Mills struggle enough at times to know that 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 doesn't automatically mean anything with regards to success. You have to know how to use your pitches. You have to execute them consistently. You have to do this properly, and, and that's hard, right? Like even the seam shifted wake stuff is is hard to do because it's all about like the slightest change in how you grip a ball is going to change where the seams are, and if the seams aren't in the right place, then that that whole thing that you're talking about where I, I think of it as and I think this is basically what you said the ball moves more than expected right more than one would expect from the shift so it's basically like a little bit of deception uh, uh, when when you talk about deception it's not just hiding the ball uh, there, there's more to it this is part of deception when when uh, pitching coaches or pitchers talk about uh, they want to add deception that's that's also what they mean uh, so you know, you you don't grip it properly. You don't throw it exactly right. It's not going to be as effective. So all these things matter. And and frankly, it's uh, since we've like been talking about this in the public discourse, it, it sounds like there aren't that many pitchers that think in this fashion, right? I've even talked to some people that like like Hendricks is basically like, okay, just tell me what the like. I just need to know where what works, right? Am I holding this right and it's moving the way I want it to? Is that what it says when I'm in the pitch lab and and all the data is coming out? Is the data right? Is this what I want to do? Is it in the right area, whatever the spectrum is that he needs to be in? As long as he knows that it's right, then he doesn't mess with. He doesn't want. I don't. This is. I'm. I'm just using Hendricks as an example. This and it was like a secondhand story that I heard. I don't think he wants to be like. Okay, so seam shifted wake is this, and if I hold the ball like this, that means I get this. He just wants to know it's working, and he continues to repeat what he's doing. It's like all the science behind it. Why would he need to know that? And frankly, I don't really need to know the science behind it. I just need to know that it exists, and then to try and <laughs> figure out how they're utilizing it. Right. Well, and that also makes for probably part of your talent acquisition model is, yeah, you want a guy with a big arm and great stuff, but you also want a guy who has the right level of openness to your methods to deploy this data. And and, and like you said, that doesn't mean you need to find someone who's like, okay, I understand these concepts deeply and I know about finger pressure and how that's going to change by one degree on the axis and da, da, da. You don't need that at all. You just need guys who are like, okay, I understand the Cubs have this model for utilizing, for collecting, utilizing, breaking down and deploying this data. And when they tell me that I should start thinking about doing this with my like trigger points and my body positioning and my exercise regimen and my diet, it's all going to work together into 
you know, this surprising success with, with my level of stuff. And I think that I would not be surprised if in the coming years we will learn more about um, that as a part of a player's makeup. You know, that, that, that being open to that part of the of player's development and maintenance and, and change is going to be a, a key component of makeup that um, I almost, it, it reminds me of things we've talked about before with respect to Wilson Contreras and pitch framing and, and about how a skill that he has that you don't think of as a skill is like his willingness and openness to do what's necessary to improve. And that's, I don't know. I guess that is a backhand knock against some players that are just like not as open to, you know, they, they want to do things how they've done it and you could provide them all the data in the world. And it's just not going to work in terms of helping them develop a skill. And so, um, you know, my guess is under the hood, part of the Cubs success with surprising guys, particularly on the pitching side, particularly in the bullpen, the last few years probably does have this added layer of, they know who to target, not just because of the skill set, but because of the they're going to have the right level of openness. I think, you know, I agree with you, first of all, on that. But I, I think that's going to be less of a concern just in general when you get to guys that are like 25 and younger now. I, you know, pretty much everyone has been growing up with this stuff now. If you... Uh, especially, you know, if you're in the minor leagues right now, if you are an amateur, you you should know this stuff. If you're if you're close, if you you know an amateur with a future in baseball, you should know this stuff already. You should be using it, and you should you should be pretty experienced with it and familiar. And a lot of these guys are seeking it out now. They want to know more about it. They they they're they're digging into it. I, it. And just thinking about this, I mean, think about all the times we heard someone like John Lester say, "Oh." I'm not into that spin stuff. I'm not really a spin uh, spin rate guy. And the thing is, like, we all just assumed – I shouldn't say we all because I, I heard some things from him last spring that I wanted to dig into and I never got a chance to because everything shut down. But he basically said – he's like, I'm still going in there and there's stuff that we're working on. It's just not what you guys are talking about when it comes to, like – a four seam rising, a four seam fastball. He didn't go into this much detail, but I think what he was suggesting is like, yeah, I don't have a four seam fastball that I'm going to pound up in the zone with the nasty breaking ball uh, afterwards. That's going to be swing and miss. That's not how I pitch. But if you look at his numbers, he was kind of a seam shifted weight guy and he went more change up to seam last year. So I think there was something to that last year where, where he says there are things I'm working on. It's just not that, you know, spin rate stuff that you're talking about. And and yeah, it, it has something to do with spin rate, but it's not what we kind of took away from, uh, you know, spin and spin access, uh, uh, whatever, nine months ago, a year ago. It was kind of a different thinking that two seamers and whatnot change-ups don't really have the same uh, type of, uh, I don't know, uh, pliability when it comes to how you can use them in a, you know, go in a pitch lab and say like, okay, let's figure out my curveball and my four-seamer and I can be like Justin Verlander type thing, right? Or I can take Garrett Cole from an average uh, pitcher to the best pitcher in baseball, arguably. Uh, it, it's just a different way of going about things. And I find it really interesting. Did it, and it, I do wonder, like, more time with Lester, more time with him figuring that stuff out. Like, what does it lead to? Does it lead to a little bit more success? Obviously, last year was a up and down season for him. So, uh, 
Arietta is one of those guys. Mills is one of those guys. Let's say, I, I'm just curious. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm also curious. Like they, they add a two seam to Alzali, right? And it, what is that going to like? Is that does he have some of that those uh, attributes as well? So now, like, what do you when you have a guy with nasty stuff and he can do this type of like he has a I don't know if he has a seam shifted wake two seamer I don't know uh, or if his changeup does that either. But I'm just saying, well, is there a combo here? I, I haven't seen it yet. It, it, like the combo of I have the nasty stuff and I also have this this stuff that guys that are more contact oriented uh, thrive with. Uh, is that like the next uh, level of a, of a really good pitcher? Can the Cubs kind of mix that too? And they have guys with stuff coming up uh, a guy like uh, Alzali, a guy like Marquez who they're also working, who they also worked with uh, on his two seamer. And, and uh, he has a good change up. Like these are, I'm, I'm very curious to see how, what level this can go to, or if it's just something small that's helpful, but not a, a complete, like we can take guys to another level, but is this just more of like we can make these guys a little bit more effective in an era where swing and miss is so valuable, but actually here's how we can make the contact oriented guys pretty good too. Yeah, I'll I'll leave it there just because we could go in a million different directions with that, especially when you bring up Alzali and you think about, you know, we don't we haven't talked enough about how like I mean he's got five playable pitches now, and like that's a lot. That is not that common that guys uh, actually have five plus big league quality deployable pitches. And by the way, it's like the same set that Jake Arietta had at his peak. It's the same set of pitches, which uh, has been fun. Like, I'm not saying Seeing nothing. Them, I'm not yeah. saying nothing. It's just been fun to see them working with each other. And it's like, oh, that's the same five pitch mi- mix that Jake used at his peak. If I, like, I, I don't want to push this podcast too long, but I just, when you say that, I think... And I don't want to say it's better that Jake's here than Lester. But don't you think that as far as someone mentoring Alzali specifically, Jake works better than Lester. They pitch similarly. This was a guy when he was at his best. Yes, I know Jake's not at his best, but he knows how to pitch with great stuff. Like he had tremendous success at one point for like a three, four year span with when he had his great stuff. Uh, So. Like I find that interesting, I, and I just Alzali in general. I I agree. We haven't spoken enough about him and how important it is this year for him developmentally. Like we can find out a lot about the Cubs, his future, the Cubs' future. If he turns into, uh, you know, like a floor of like a three this year, like we see a hundred so or so innings. Well, I don't know how many innings he can really uh, rack up this year, but whatever innings it is as a starter and see him be effective and start seeing swing and miss consistently and the walks not uh, piling up and the, and some sort of consistency from him with production wise. I mean that it's a really important year, I think for him uh, just to see what his role is. He can, he could fail as a starter this year and still be a great reliever. But I think this is the year where we need to find out. And that's kind of why I've written that, if you're if you're talking about Mills versus Alzali for that final spot in the rotation, I think you have to lean Alzali. Uh, at least, uh, it, I, I guess it won't matter as much because both are going to get starts in the grand scheme of things this year. But still, I, I want to see what Alzali can do as a starter. I think Mills can be a solid starter, but I think his ceiling is like a four or maybe a three. I think Alzali has like a ceiling of like a two 
right? And I, I I'm being uh, I'm pretty conservative with that. So I, I don't think I, like there's very few people I consider having a ceiling of a one. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think that that's that's a fascinating angle this year for the whole season, not just spring training, but the season as a whole. What they can get out of Alzali and where his development leads. Yeah, there aren't too many guys that in this 2021 season that we will talk incessantly about being a walk year for so many guys. Uh, there aren't that many pieces who will be playing an important role at the big league level whose importance is multifactored because they could be around for a while. It could be so important. and There just aren't that many guys that are going to play a key role this year who could be pieces for sort of like the next window. And Alzali, I mean... You could make an argument he's the most important, given the range of possible outcomes. Um, so we'll leave it there. Uh, good stuff. Good. I'm glad we got nerdy. That that you know what it was? <laughs> Mooney left. You know, it's just not nerdy enough. No, he would have been sneering at us, <laughs> shaking his head. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, definitely uh, make sure you're checking out Sahadev's and Patrick's work at the Athletic. Uh, you can read my stuff at Bleacher Nation, and you can rate. Subscribe, review uh, all the wonderful stuff about Onto Waveland. It's the podcast uh, here at The Athletic. We'll be back at you next week. Uh, we'll have some games, kind of, sort of, to talk about because uh, spring training games begin on Monday. So thank you, folks, as always, for listening. And uh, we'll, we'll, I almost said we'll see you soon. I guess we won't see you soon, but, but you'll hear us soon. So take care. Thanks.